when Isaiah's reading this weekend, Isaiah just said, said, forget the past. That's Isaiah. Forget the past. And um, he gives these descriptions of the promised land, the joy that God welcomes us into. That's from Isaiah. And um, Paul backed that up and then Christ backed it up. All of the readings were asking us to be careful of the past. It's there for all of us. Memories are real for all of us. Um, but we're asked to live in the present, to not let the past become a burden. Um, it's one of the things that distinguishes our faith because we're the supernatural gifts given to us, they're not our own. They're from God, um, our faith, hope, and charity. We're to live with hope. So I ask um, Christ... Um, Spirit, Father, for all of us to strengthen our efforts um, to bring our burdens from the past into the present, somehow let them go um, in the trust um, of what you're doing with them, to make some good out of them. Strengthen all of us so that we can contribute whatever efforts we can to that effort to help make things good here, but um, strengthen us in our hope that we can bring that to all that we do in our marriages, um, in our families, what we do with others. Ask for a special blessing on Denise. She was doing well. I, I don't think David would ask unless something's going on. So watch over her, please. Um, let this be an occasion for her growing in her faith, whatever is to happen. And I ask for um, um, a quiet, a great trust in both David and Kay. I'm sorry, it's Kathy. Kathy, sorry. Uh, Kathy is the person. Sorry? Her name is Kathy. And your name, sorry. Debbie. Debbie, Kathy. Be with Kathy. Stage four is serious. Um, watch over her. Um, let the doctors do all they can. Um, if it's your will, um, help her to survive this. If it's not, um, let this be an occasion for her growing in her faith in you, letting go of this life. Um, and sorry, where Denise, her, oh, yeah, her daughter, and be with Melody's no, daughter, Caroline. Caroline, Caroline. Um, in her move, um, it's a new beginnings for her, um, and in some ways for Melody and her husband, um, something new is happening in their life. So let it be in keeping with the spirit that we just mentioned. That we are to come into the present moment in joy. Um, even in our sorrows. Those are Paul's words to us constantly. Strengthen in us a grace of joy, whatever our sorrows are, that's our faith. And help us to bring that to all that we do with each other. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Doc, did you start it or? You did start it. Okay. Um, okay. You all have the poems, right? Mm -hmm. Melody, I don't think I got them to you, but, um, but I will send them. But um, Actually, they, they're in that old poetry folder, but don't, just listen, and I'll, I'll get them to you. We've been talking about the important, John Paul makes a crucial point of underscoring how important wonder is for this journey that we're all on. Remember, he says that, um, all of us by nature were meant to learn. That shouldn't stop for us. 
to be like little children. We should be wondering all the time. And too often, as we age and think we're smart, <laughs> we're usually knocked down, I think, when we do. But, um, but so often, when, as we become older and more intelligent, I, I'm, I'm not sure we hold on to wonder as much as we should. The poems that we, we've been reading, I, I hope, have increased a sense of wonder in everybody, particularly when we read them, but even when you're not. Remember in The Wind Hover, Hopkins is describing a bird and the bird hovering. And in that moment, um, he finds Christ on the cross. In that moment of buckling, that bird, that bird masters the air. For just a moment, he masters the air. And all of those powers, remember the poem, all of those powers are gathered together and they buckle. Which means they come together, but they also are crushed. He can't sustain it. He cannot, he doesn't have that mastery. And he buckles in, and at that moment he carries on his flight. And remember Hopkins' words were, no wonder, there's no wonder, it's everywhere. It's in the work of a farmer in his plowing, plowed down cillion, and it's in a fire, fall, gall, crash, gold, vermilion, you know, as the fire's burning out. It, it produces this beautiful life, light and warmth, at the cost of its life. It's going out. And last week, I read the uh, um, Schneckenberg's um, Supernatural Love. It's her account as a mother looking back at herself when she was a four-year-old girl and pricks herself. Nothing, nothing happens. Those sort of things happen all the time. Except she helps us to see that in that moment, that little girl is with Christ. In that stupid, simple little thing, pricking, she shares something with our God. So in both of those poems, we're allowed to experience wonder. We're, we're helped to see Christ is present everywhere. Melody, are you okay? Can you hear? Christ is present everywhere. Um, he's all around us. Yeah? I mean, do we see him? Those who've been doing the course with him, you know the title of it's Finding Christ, where ordinarily we don't see him. He's every, there, there's nothing going on in the world that doesn't have him. Nothing. This is God's world. There's, nothing, there's very little in our modern world that encourages us to see that. But the poets that we really do. Okay? George Herbert was an Anglican priest. This is just after the Reformation. And he, um, he, so he lived during the Renaissance. And he wrote this wonderful collection of poems. Um, and by the way, I, I, I think I've said to you before, um, if you go on the site um, for Francis Orsi's, you'll see that there's a poetry um, file. So you can go into that file and get all the poems we've done. <laughs> no, come up here. <laughs> can you hear me okay? <laughs> you can't, good, okay. Um, I can't reach you, that's the problem. I, <laughs> I want to read three of his poems, but before we do, I want you to take a look at it. Look at the first poem, The Altar, how it's structured, yeah? Um, take, turn the page and take a look at um, Hesu, at the bottom of page two. Can you see the spelling um, parceled out through the lines, Hesu, I, E's, you? And if you look at the next page, our life is hidden, Christ. Look at the way hidden words um, move diagonally across the page. They're hidden. Has everybody seen that? Mm -hmm. 
So once again, um, um, words that have a special meaning um, are being revealed in other words that are being spoken, okay? Look at Mary. What's an anagram? Does everybody know what an anagram is? An anagram just means transposition of letters, so the letters in one word can be changed to be to make another word. So an anagram, look at, look at, Hop, look at Herbert, what he does. Who's Anna? Mary's mother. What's a gram? That's the word. Look at Anna's Mary's mother. Anagram means um, transposing a word, showing that it's pregnant, that it contains other words. What does the word Mary contain if you transpose the letters? An army. It's like um, Anna, in producing Mary, um, gave birth to an army because Christ and everybody would come out of it. So, is everybody following? Is everybody seeing? So in all these poems, watch what Herbert's doing with words. Why is he playing with words? Because Christ is the word, and he can be found everywhere. If we only look. Are lots of people in the modern world looking? No. But is everybody clear? Is everybody okay in what I've just said? Okay, I want to read just a couple of poems tonight. Um, just for you to experience um, George Herbert. Um, let's see. Who's, um, Bobby. Oh, where's Karen? Is she okay? Yeah. She's visiting her sister. Can I just have the three of you be the echo in heaven on page three. Okay. So don't speak the words, but together you just give the echo of my whatever word I'm giving, okay? You have to do this in unison. You don't have any practice. <laughs> the pressure's on you guys right now, okay? George Herbert's heaven. Let's see. Who came down from heaven among the trees and leaves? Okay, everybody knows. He came down among the leaves. What's another possible meaning of leaves? The pages of the Bible. They're leaves. They're pages of the Bible. Okay? So if that wasn't obvious, you'd, you'd um, just hold that in mind. But the real question to ask here is, um, why does everything we say here have an echo in heaven? because it's the source of things. Can't be any other way. Nothing will exist outside of heaven. So there's an interplay between everything that's going on here and its original source in heaven. That's why the echo, okay? So Bob, K, Dave, if you could help me out here, okay? <laughs> oh, who will show me these delights on high? Aye. Aye. Thou echo, thou art mortal, all men know. No. Wert thou not born among the trees and leaves? Leaves. And are there any leaves that still abide? Bye. What leaves are they impart the matter holy? Holy. Are holy leaves the echo then of bliss? Yes. Then tell me, what is that supreme delight? Light. Light, Light to the mind, what shall the will enjoy? Joy. But are there cares and business with the pleasure? Leisure. 
like joy and leisure, but shall they persevere ever? ever. Okay. What Christ did was make it possible for us to make a connection between our world and another world. There is a constant echoing going on. Um, I'm going to read death because it seems to me it's appropriate for um, Easter. And we're heading towards the passion and crucifixion. Except Christ changed everything. Um, um, he, he helped us see something the pagans could not, even though they had intimations of it all the time. This is Herbert's death. Death thou was once an uncouth hideous thing, nothing but bones, the sad effect of sadder groans. Thy mouth was open, but thou couldst not sing, for we considered thee as some six or ten years hence, after the loss of life and sense, flesh being turned to dust and bones to sticks. We looked on this side of thee, shooting short, where we did find the shells of fledged souls left behind, dry dust which sheds no tears but may extort. But since our Savior's death did put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace. He transformed death. We should not be sad. It's our entrance way to Christ. There's a grace in it, if we could see it. Um, but since our Savior's death did put some blood into thy face, thou art grown fair and full of grace, much in request, much sought for as a good. For we do now behold thee gay and glad as at doomsday, when souls shall wear their new array, and all thy bones with beauty shall be clad. Therefore we can die asleep and trust half that we have unto an honest, faithful grave, making our pillows either down or dust. The choice is ours. I'll end with um, love on the first page. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew near to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I. Truth, Lord, but I have marred them, that my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame. My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Okay. Um, I would just encourage all of you who've not read it, on the very last page is a poem called Collar. It's one of my favorites, probably my favorite at all. Read it, and read it um, with the mind that there are, again, two meanings to the word call, collar, just like buckle, okay? Read the poem. Remembering that um, Herbert's a priest, he's wearing a collar. It's like a, a rope is attached to him, keeping him from doing other things, okay? But read it, it's a beautiful poem, okay? I'll leave it to you. Maybe we'll probably read it sometime, but not tonight. Okay. Before we start tonight, uh, I'd, try to, I'd like to try to read what we're doing. 
Michelle, you can hear me okay back there. Mm -hmm. Do I need to do it? Can you hear me? Is this on?
was to recover the garden. And that became more and more a part of the American psyche as we went on. Because to the mind of the original Puritans, they were fleeing a, a garden that had been corrupted. Catholic Church, what was going on with the Reformation, the power struggles between the Crown and the Presbyterians and, and the various groups that made up the war, the contending parties in the wars. So those were our original motives. So if we hold those two motives up to our lives today, to have the freedom to practice our religious beliefs and to recover a garden, how do they match up? I don't want, I don't want, I do not want to open this to discussion right now, because I don't think I could close it down if I did. <laughs> but how do we match up today? The garden has turned into suburbia, wealth, wealth beyond nature. And the divisions between poor and rich are greater. But the idea behind it, if you think about what suburbia is, is an attempt to recover the garden. People are fleeing the city to get out of evil, the corruption of it, and found a garden. It's one of the defining parts of suburbia, no? The irony is, it, look at the efforts to attempt to make a suburbia all over the West. You go to Europe, you go to America. Because we cannot escape our sins, materially. There's as much drugs or divorces or abortion or you name it going on in suburbia as there is in the city. It's not as open. But suburbia doesn't free us of our sins. It's only one thing that can free us of our sins, and certainly not our comfort. And how are we doing with respect to our um, commitment to practice our faith? Because it means our life. The pilgrims sacrificed their lives. Lots of people died on the ways. They had to give up everything, their homes, their families. How well are we doing on that? The first commandment is love God more than anything including our families. First love is supposed to be of God. How are we doing on those things? Okay. So those were our original um, motivations, the inspirations for founding this country. Lots of people today think uh, America's corrupt in its founding, that we came here to um, create a slave class, to abuse people, to, to violate people. That isn't the motive with which the um, pure was set out from England to the northern world from there to America. Um, remember, remember what St. Thomas and Boethius both said about worldly goods. This is the great theme of Boethius' consolation. The trouble with most of us is that we pursue goods that are perishing, perishable, fleeting. What are they? Will, power, fame, pleasure. I just want to take that up for a moment. Those are the things that um, motivate most people. I, I would say they're true for Americans. Most Americans today are motivated by those things. I'm just going back to the, what I said a minute ago. That we turn the garden into material prosperity. And we've lost, or let me put it as a question, have we lost a sense of the original garden? and its relationship to the New Jerusalem. Because according to our Bible, everything starts in the garden and goes towards the city, the New Jerusalem. It's a new community um, with Christ as a family. There are 
you know, immediate founders, Abraham, Moses, you know, the others, but they're pointing to Christ who brought in this new kingdom. The four goods that most of us pursue are wealth, power, reputation, and pleasure. I just want to take a second though, I don't want to go into this much. What happens with wealth? We can have a billion dollars stacked in front of us in bills. Is having all that wealth going to answer anything? It's not going to, by itself it has no inherent worth. I hope that's clear. We can have a million dollars in our possession. The only perk, the only good it serves is that it helps us get other things that we want. What about power? Same thing. By itself it's not a good. It's only we can use it to get other things. Fame. Those of you who've done the Iliad know how perishable fame is. Very often, fame to fit. Look at Christ. Honor. That was the great king of the Iliad. Depends on other people. They honor us. We're only famous because of the reputation people give us. Right? How solid? How is that everlasting? Christ took it to a cross. He was. Um, he was humiliated, scorned. He suffered the most humiliating kind of death. There was no fame in that. Most of us would want to run from it. Fame is much easier. So none of those goods is lasting. And the interesting thing about pleasure is pleasure. Even if we have all those things in order to attain a pleasure, in using money to buy things, or using our power to get what we want, because it gives us a pleasure, whatever pleasures they give us are fleeting. Okay. So the whole argument of Boethius' work was um, it's only when we set our hearts on what is imperishable, not fleeting, that we can finally be happy. So if, you, if we look at the American founding and put it next to what we're doing today as Americans, how are we doing? If one of the most basic things to our character is to learn, 
that's inherent in us. We should not stop working until we die. How are we doing on it? Why is John Paul writing this encyclical? Because the claim he's making is that the natural, the most natural thing for all of us as human beings, what sets us off from the animals, is not power, overcoming another animal so that we can eat or having shelter. I mean, those are all basic needs. We share them with animals, right? Shelter, food. Um, the one thing that sets us off as humans is this capacity that we have to learn. He said, we are seekers of the truth. There is some truth. We long for it. We hunger for it as much as we do food. Sometimes this world becomes too much with it, and we, we make food more important than the truth. What happens when we do is generally we lose some measure of happiness. There's something wrong. Our souls are not right. But the argument that he's making is we are seekers of truth. If we don't stay with that journey, continue to make that effort to discover truth, in some ways we're not answering the most basic thing, and it's one of the things that defines us as human beings, okay? But we live in a certain culture. This is a culture um, that wants um, religious liberties. Um, it wants to be free to do what it wants, and wants to recover the garden, okay? Um, I should have included in that one of the things that defines the modern America, or, or two of the things, if, if, we can, if we can jump from what our beginnings were to the present, I'd say some of the things that define us as America are, are um, we want to win, we want to have our way. Um, so we will pursue wealth, power, fame, pleasure, because we want to have our way. Mine, it's mine, I want this, I want that. We want to win. Um, and it's what makes us excel. Think about the differences between wanting to win, to have our way, to be better than other people, and seeking the truth. These are the two radically different things. So John Paul's not writing Fidio Rezio in a vacuum. He's writing it at a time when other things have become more important to us at the cost of our nature. And that's sort of Um, any, any questions? I want to keep this brief because I want to get to the book now and, and go through John Paul's arguments. But any questions or comments on uh, the background of this? Those of you who've done Dante, you remember that. Dante's writing in the first commercial regime is the prototype for us. And, uh, remember, Pope Francis wanted our whole church, he asked everybody in our church to read Dante. That the driving force of Florence, the modern commercial regime, is the prototype for us. What drives everybody in Florence is pride, greed, envy. You don't want to be left behind, you want to get what you want. You envy other people when they have it and you don't. That doesn't sound strange or unfamiliar because those are the defining dynamics of the America. In some ways, too much of the defining characteristics of modern America. Um, okay, let's.
let's look at fide in ratio. Melody, I don't want to, do you have any questions on this? I don't believe you. <laughs> Sorry. I, oh, Chuck. Lori, it's good to see you guys. Hi. We've been here the whole time. Yeah, I know. You've been, eat, you've been eating while we've been struggling. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Bad timing. No, I'm kidding, because we've got food back there. You're right over. Let's turn to. Um, remember, in the first chapter, John Paul had made. You can hear me okay now. Hmm? Say closer to the mic. Yeah, I got it because I move around. It's not going to happen. Um, in the first chapter, remember, he made a, um, a special point of saying that we're all on a journey, and what this defines this journey is our love of truth, that it's essential to our nature, we want to live the truth, and it, it becomes clearer and clearer that the truth for him is not just a mental, it's not just an intellectual abstraction, it's a person and a way of being. Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. It's not, a, it's not an abstraction. It's a condition with our God to, to live one with the way things are. Not losing any of that because we choose other things. So let me, let me go to the second chapter. Um, the second chapter is divided into two parts. Oh, sorry, wait, the first chapter. That was the introduction. The first chapter is called The Revelation of God's Wisdom, and it's divided into two. The Revelation of God's Wisdom has two parts. Jesus the Revealer, that's on page 17, in section 7. And um, the second section, Reason Before the Mystery. So the two parts actually give away what he's talking about. Jesus reveals the Father. You know that particularly in John. I am, I am, I am the Father. In me, in me, you see the Father. The second half is reason before the mystery. How does reason function before something as mysterious as God revealing himself to us? Is that clear? So there are two issues here. One is Christ has revealed the kingdom. He didn't leave us in the dark concerning anybody's father. He revealed the father's love. He revealed the father's law. He fulfilled the law. He uncovered it all. Uh, he came to, it becomes clear in Matthew, he came to recall the Jewish people back because they lost their way. And then he finds himself going out to deal with everybody, all the Gentiles, the, uh, the Canaanite woman, uh, the centurion. So he's revealed everything. Um, but that leaves us with a problem. How does reason do in the face of that fundamental mystery? God coming down here and revealing himself. Okay. Chapter 1, Jesus revealed of the Father. This is page 17 in my book, but it's section 7 for those of you who are. Underlying all the church's thinking is the awareness that she is the bearer of a message which has its origin in God himself. The knowledge which the church offers to man has its origin not in any speculation of her own, our sublime, but in the word of God which she has received in faith. 
At the origin of our life of faith, there is an encounter unique in kind which discloses a mystery hidden for long ages. In his goodness and wisdom, God chose to reveal himself to make known to us the hidden purpose of his will. Before Christ came, there was a separation between us and God. There was even for the Jews, even though he revealed himself. There's still a separation. God was still partly a mystery. There were things unknown. Christ came into the world and when he did, he left nothing about the kingdom in the dark. He revealed the Father, his love for us, his law, the law he gave Moses, and he made it clear that we are to do everything we can to be just, to obey the law, to, be, to bring justice into our world, but to not leave it at justice because justice by itself becomes too self-righteous, too hard. We're to bring Christ's love. We can only do that with Him. And that involves a cross for every one of us. So the truth is Christ revealed it is present. It's no longer as large a mystery as it was before, but it draws us into a mystery. How does each one of us fulfill that? All of us are different. Every single person in here, all of us, has a calling. What is it? How is each one of us to reveal Christ in our lives? There's not a question in my mind. We can't live without receiving that from God. It just doesn't happen. <laughs> we're not robots. We're people made in His image. If we're made in His image, we're Trinitarian. There's something in us that wants to love and be loved, to know and be known. So there's not one of us that doesn't have a purpose involving God. So Christ revealed all of that um, on page 18, the next page, he says, on the basis of mistaken and very widespread assertions, the rationalist critique of the time attacked faith and denied the possibility of any knowledge which was not the fruit of reason's natural capacities. This obliged the council uh, to reaffirm emphatically that there exists a knowledge which is peculiar to faith surpassing the knowledge proper to human reason. Okay. Now go back up at the top of page 18, just for a second, in section 8. John Paul says, For stating almost to the letter the teaching of the First Vatican Council's Constitution, uh, and taking into account the principles set out in the Council of Trent, the Second Vatican's Constitution, Stephen, pursued age-old journey of understanding faith. So, John Paul, at the outset of this encyclical, connects three councils, okay? The Council of Trent um, was held between 1545 and 1563, and you know that for the most part it was um, called in order to answer so many of the changes that were being um, implemented by the Reformation years, Luther and Wycliffe and the others. Um, most of the concerns at that time were the biblical canon, sacred tradition, because you know that according to um, most broad and sola scripture, scripture alone, they turned away from scripture and said, ironically, this, um, that tradition is unnecessary. It, it's stunning to think about it because the traditions preceded the scriptures. The scriptures were based on them. You couldn't have scriptures without them. But they did away with them because they wanted to make them 
person's individual private response to Scripture the basis of what he did. What he did was attack the church at all. Is that clear? Take away tradition, put the basis of your reading of Scripture on your own, and you don't need a church, you don't need anybody but yourself. Or people who are like-minded. So, biblical canon, sacred tradition, the view of original sin, remember that according to the Protestant Reformation thinkers, um, the, the fall was complete. We were ruined, we became depraved. In essence, it's only by God's grace that we can be saved. The, the Catholic does not disbelieve that. Catholic believes the same thing, but he does not believe we exist in a state of depravity. We're wounded. There's an essential goodness to all of it. Will it get us to heaven? No, it will not. We can't get there without Christ. But there's this essential good. It's a difference between a very, very dark view and a view that allows for original sin. Justification was probably the most important issue in the Reformation changes. The belief there was that people were justified by Christ and it, that justification was imputed. That's I don't want this. This is really funny. By the way, I don't think it's been four years. I think it's three, three and a half. But <laughs> I don't want this because it was like three years ago. This word imputed. <laughs> It's, in, it's imputed. Christ's grace is imputed from outside. It's a covering, which means um, anything, um, any sin we have will be covered up. The response of people who disagree with that position was what Luther's proposing is a little bit like putting snow on dung. Because according to this belief of justification, you can continue to do what you do. Grace is irresistible, it won't change. You'll be saved. One of Calvin's central beliefs. Is that clear? To impute it means you wear this outer armor, it protects you, while inwardly you continue to do the same thing and feel okay about it. Set that against the Catholic world. The whole ch charge of the Catholic world is constant conversions. Confessions are a part of our life. We go to confession continually, and we wouldn't if we if, if our graces were imputed, we had no need, we'd have no need for them. That's why confessions was taken out. Um, and the sacraments. The sacraments went from seven to basically two or three. Um, baptism and marriage. Um, so that was in the Council of Trent. And let me just take a minute with the priestly orders too. Because they're taken out. If the authority, the, the sacramental order passes down from hands in the Catholic tradition, Greek Orthodox, the Old Eastern Orthodox world, the sacramental order is the same. Um, if the priestly orders is no longer a sacrament, where does the authority to do anything come from? No longer the priest or a bishop or a hierarchy, where does it come from? The congregation. Basically, they will decide who the priests are. If the authority for a priest is decided on the basis of a congregation, and 60% of the congregation happens to be persuaded by the world that women can be ordinated, 
or there can be homosexual marriage or euthanasia or even whatever it is, abortion. What will happen? The congregation will go that way. So the, the authority of the church was attacked at its roots. Is that clear? So the, the sacraments went from seven to two or three, and the authority of the church was undermined and put in the hands of the individual people or the collective majority. The power, the power of the majority. Why? Why has the modern Catholic Church been so concerned with relativism and subjectivism? Because those are some of the things introduced in the Reformation. What matters is your own private faith. The priestly authority, or the magisterium, or the tradition being passed on. So the Council of Trent, the church called itself together to try to answer what was the beginning of real changes in Christendom. Okay? John Paul mentions the second, or the first Vatican Council. It was called in 1869 and ended in 1870. And it was, it was dealing with some of the same modern dynamics, the things that were set in motion from the Reformation, they were still in effect, and the new ideologies coming out of the sciences. So the, the first Vatican Council in the 19th, or 19th century, or the mid-19th century, was called to address some of those ills because they were growing worse. The second Vatican Council was called, as you know, from 1962 to 65, and its central impulse was to update the changes that had been made in the Council of Trent and in the uh, first Vatican Council. So let me go back to those lines. This is section eight. For stating almost to the letter the teaching of the First Vatican Council's Constitution, De Filius, and taking into account the principles set out by the Council of Trent, the Second Vatican Council's Constitution, uh, reflecting on Revelation in light of the teachings of Scripture of the entire Christian tradition. Um, On the basis of mistaken and very widespread assertions, the rationalist critique of the time of Tanfei, asserting um, there was nothing valid to any knowledge except that knowledge coming from uh, our natural uses of reason. So it denied the knowledge of faith. And I hope it's clear, you know, I mean, probably just repeating everything you already know, but. Faith is a knowledge. That's how it's defined. It's the knowledge of certain things to come. It is a knowing. Does it have an empirical basis? No, it comes from God. Does that make it less a knowledge? No, unless you, you, you hold a modern prejudice that there is no knowledge except that knowledge that comes from us and our use of our senses. So immediately, he's setting very clearly the terms of our modern struggle. On page 19, it says, based upon God's test, this is um, section 9, based upon God's testimony and enjoying the supernatural assistance of grace, faith is of an order other than philosophic knowledge which depends upon sense perception 
an experience in which advances by the light of the intellect alone. Go down, contemplating Jesus as revealer of the fathers of the second Adam, the council stressed the salvific character of God's revelation in history, describing it in these terms. In this revelation, the invisible God, out of the abundance of his love, speaks to men and women as friends and lives among them, that he might invite and take them into communion with himself. Um, this plan of revelation is realized by deeds and words having an inner unity. The deeds wrought by God in the history of salvation manifest and confirm teaching and reality signified by the words of this so God enters time. You know, over and over and over again, I've been hitting you over the head with this question. When you take communion, where are you? Where are we on the way to the parking lot? Do we really feel like we're a part of God's kingdom? That's an awful burden. It's so much easier just to go to a car. Unless the kids are in the back seat and they're screaming. Car seats in the back, you got the rest of the in. He lives among them so that he may invite and take them into communion with himself. Um, he came among us, made us his friends. We were one with his kingdom. In John's Gospel, it's one of the ones I want to do if we hold together on this. Matthew is filled with parables, countless parables. John's Gospel has maybe seven or eight events. That's it. And in every one of them, Christ is saying, I am, I am, I am, and the Father, you see me, if you don't know me, you don't know him, if you don't you know him, you do. He's, and all of those are indirect accusations of the Jews. Because the defining mark of their character is the love of their Father. If they had done that, they should have known him. And he's saying, you don't know him. He's about ready to pass on his mission to the Gentiles. Uh, but in John, he's saying over and over, over and over, and he's making it real by his actions, by the miracles. The kingdom is here. It's established. We get to uh, Revelation, you'll see it's done, it's over. He defeated death by giving himself. The question is, do we participate in it? Do we let go of this world enough to enter that life with him? That means living in this world and bringing another into it whatever we're doing. So this is serious business for John. God's revelation is therefore immersed in time and history. Jesus Christ took flesh in the fullness of time, and 2,000 years later, I feel bound to restate forcefully that in Christianity, time has a fundamental importance. We cannot escape it. It's where we meet God. Okay? Um, Jesus, this is on page... Section 11. Um, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, sent us, sent as a human being. The human being speaks the words of God and completes the work of salvation which His Father gave Him. To see Jesus is to see His Father. For this reason, Jesus perfected revelation by fulfilling it through His whole life. Everything He said. On page 21, in the incarnation of the Son, we see forged the enduring definitive synthesis which the human mind of itself could not even imagine. The eternal enters time. Um, the all-powerful comes powerless. 
The unneedy becomes needy. The invulnerable becomes vulnerable. The infinite becomes finite. I mean, we could go on and on. The list of parents does not stop. All those amazing things of eternity and their time. So I've produced some of these good poems that you know, we've been reading too. Um, <coughs> page 22, the second half of the, that first chapter, reason for mystery. So how does reason do? How well do we do in our uses of reason with this statement we've been given? The whole thrust of the work we're doing together, um, I, I hope it just gets stronger and stronger, you know from me, is to see how well we're doing with reason. I'm, I'm not here to, I cannot hear myself saying two sentences without talking about faith, but that's not my purpose. Everything I want to do here is to strengthen us in our efforts to recover better uses of reason because they're supposed to go together. I've said it before, we, I, this is a, such a strong belief that the people that we're reading are writing all these books demonstrating how important reason is for our faith. In a process, largely across the world, it's gone. We've got to take this fight to the streets. We have to get better at using our reason. So, how can we do that? Reason for the mystery, how well does it do? It should nonetheless be kept in mind that Revelation remains charged with mystery. It's true that Jesus, with his entire life, revealed the kindness of the Father. It goes on. A few lines below, he says, Faith is said first to be an obedient response to God. This implies that God being acknowledged in his divinity, transcendence, and supreme freedom. Um, so the first response is an act of obedience to God. That's an expression of our faith. Going over 23, he says, To assist reason in its effort to understand the mystery, there are signs which revelation itself presents. These serve to lead the search for truth to new depths, enabling the mind in its autonomous exploration, because the mind has a certain autonomy in the world, certain independence, enabling the mind in its autonomous exploration to penetrate within the mystery by use of reason's own methods of which it is rightly jealous. What's the antecedent of that hit? This is a grammatical question. Let me throw some of you. These serve to lead the search for truth to new depths, enabling the mind in its autonomous exploration to penetrate within the mystery by use of reason's own methods of which it is rightly jealous. Who's jealous of what? Melody. Nope. Nope, it's Alice. <laughs> Come on. I've got to get you in here. No, you don't, really. Um, I got lost when you were oh, reading that part. So, I here, so I'm here. not sure. Is everybody following where we are? What number is this? It's, it's, no. it's just, it's the towards the end of Reason for a Mystery. It's, the third, it's section 13. To assist reason, it does the paragraph begins, to assist reason in its effort to understand the mystery, there are signs. The mind gets help. These serve to lead the search for truth to new depths. They enable the mind in its autonomous exploration to penetrate within the mystery by use of reason's own methods of which it is rightly jealous. Who's jealous of what? The mind. Jealous of what? Of, of its own methods, yeah. Is that clear? 
Yeah, because, because there's a certain autonomy we have. I can't put this more strongly as, why, why, for 400 years, the West, which has been the center of Christmas, has turned away from God, it's become more and more secular. Why? If it wasn't, if it wasn't for our incredible powers of reason, why would we do it? The powers of reason are so great. Look at what we've accomplished. We, I, I can't be in the car watching a plane travel across the sky without looking on an amazement. We, we put something in the air like that, or a ship. Or we've done what we've done with computers, or, you know. Why need God? We've perverted our right of freedom. <laughs> and everything's under, we're, we're entitled to this. You know, yeah, yeah. this is our. Uh, Reason is an extraordinary power. We can do so much with it. As a matter of fact, those of you who have been with, remember when we talked about um, the theme of the city, it's been one of the central themes of our work together. Where does the first city come into existence? After Cain is exiled, Enoch creates, founds the first city. The first city comes into existence when man separates himself from God. It's his effort to live without God, to have complete autonomy. That's the founding. We've gone over this every work we've read, the Iliad, the Odyssey, Shakespeare. The city where they are pointing, the echo, New Jerusalem. How are we doing in living our lives in that city? Reason's an extraordinary thing. We founded a city on it. That's why the city is such a great thing. Remember from the beginning, the city defines our lives. That's, that's why I started with what do we do in America. The city defines us. It is the greatest thing in the world, our greatest achievement, and it's our curse. It's where we commit our greatest sins. I hinted at that last week when I talked about the two beasts Remember Revelation. We want to create this world in our own image. Powers of reason are so great. We cannot, we cannot undervalue them. Reason gets rightly jealous because it's so good, it's autonomous. Section 14. From the teaching of the two Vatican councils, there also emerges a genuinely novel consideration for philosophic learning. Revelation is set within history a point of reference which cannot be ignored if the mystery of human life is to be known. Yet this knowledge refers back constantly to the mystery of God, which the human mind cannot exhaust, but can only receive and embrace in faith. Between these two poles, reason has its own specific field in which it can acquire and understand. So there is within us this instinct to constantly learn to know the truth. It's inbred. If we were made by God, I mean, let me put it in human terms. I, you know, let's say you were raised um, and, as a boy, and your parents separated, and you grew up not knowing your father. I can't imagine a girl, a boy, not wanting to know who their father is, at some point wanting to make that connection. Where did we come from? It goes back to those ultimate questions, yeah? If we were made by God, human parents, but can parents create an immortal soul? It comes cooperation with God is our moment's hope. If that's from Him, His part in us, then there is within us this innate, instinctive longing to 
return these innocent particles. We want to complete ourselves. We can't do it without finally being reunited, reunited with him. The, the, the thing that should be said on a deathbed, hopefully for all of us, is you're going home. You're going home. What else can you say? You're leaving a veil of tears. You're going home. Be glad and pray. It's what all of us seek, that reunion with our Father to recover what we've lost. Chapter 2 is once again divided into two sections. On page 28, the first section says, um, Wisdom knows all and understands all. Credo and intelligence. We, um, we believe in order to know, in order to understand. We start by believing things. Is that clear to everybody? I mean, sometimes these things are so self-evident we don't think about them. When you're a little child and you're four years old and your parents tell you not to run out on the street, I would hope, I mean, who, who at that age can intellectually conceive that that's a form of knowledge? Your parents say, look out on the street because they want you to get hit by a car. You believe that because you're taking your parents. If that's true of a child towards his parents, how can it be less true of adults towards a God who knows infinitely more than we do? We believe. It's only in believing something that we can come to understand. So we start with belief as people. Let me ask this as a how many of us can say honestly right now that belief is a big part of our lives? And we hold on to that power because we know it will turn into a knowledge, a deeper knowledge at some point. Are we, are, we, are we actively engaged in this quest for truth, or have we put it to sleep? I mean, I think the only reason I'm here and been doing this, you know, those of you who've done this, because I love literature so much, because it has so much to give us. It helps us. Literature helps us to see ourselves deeply. I mean, those of you who've been doing these literary works, how can you read those words in literature and not feel that you're learning to see yourself, to see others more deeply? It's so irrelevant. What is it in the world that gets in the way of our doing that? What do we let get in the way of constant learning? Um, chapter 2. Sacred scripture indicates with remarkable clear cues how deeply related the knowledge conferred by faith and the knowledge conferred by reason and it's in the wisdom literature that this relationship is addressed explicitly. Go down below. Happy the man who meditates on wisdom and reasons intelligently, who reflects in his heart on her ways and ponders her secrets. He pursues her like a hunter that lies in wait on her paths. Do we do that? He peers through her windows and listens at her doors. He camps near her house and fastens his tent pegs to her walls. He pitches, pitches his tent near her and so finds excellent resting place. He places his children under her protection and lodges under her bounds. By her he is sheltered from the heat and he dwells in the shade of glory. What the Bible is giving us is not only the history books, it's given us um, the wisdom literature and the prophets. So a major number of books are looked at as wisdom literature. 
We read them to grow in wisdom. What was, when, when Solomon was given the choice to have whatever he wanted, what did he ask for? Do you remember? Wisdom. Wisdom. What did he get? I mean, it said in the Bible that among the, among the sons of men, he is the wisest ever to Milton hated him. It just it strikes me so ironic. I think he hated him because <laughs> I guess I'm not hope I'm not going beyond myself here. Um, Solomon was reputed to have had a thousand wives. That would have disgusted Milton a lot. <laughs> I, I, kept, I remember doing this with Melanie. Melanie, can you hear? I, I, I remember when we talked. I don't remember what we must have been doing that day. And I brought the question of something like uh, <laughs> a thousand wives and millions of response, but it would be exhausting. <laughs> she goes, right on. What else can you say? Um, but he's reputed to be the wisest man of all, you know, um, because he wanted to rule well. He wanted to serve well. So, so. how well did he use his wisdom all the time? But still, biblically, it said scripturally, of all the men born, he was the wisest. Um, <clears throat> section 19, the Book of Wisdom contains several important texts which cast further light on this theme. There the sacred author speaks of God and reveals himself in nature. For the ancients, the study of the natural sciences coincided in large part with philosophic learning. Having affirmed that their intelligence, human beings through them, or with their intelligence, human beings, to know the structures of the world and the activity of the elements, the cycles of the year, the constellations of the stars, the natures of animals, and the tempers of wild beasts. It goes on. That's from wisdom. Who cares? Why is that important? To know all those things of the temporal order, the natural order. Serious question, Heather. Who cares? Because to know them is to know their creator. Right. Paul. We know invisible things. We know invisible things through the things remain. Here's one of the problems with the modern world it began with Bacon. Up until Bacon, the tendency was um, to, to love truth for the sake of truth itself. Bacon's new organ, the word that replaced Aristotle's word, was to master nature, to use scientific methods to master nature, to bring it under how many people approach nature today knowing that through it they will come to know their creator? How many of us use nature to control it, to master it, to make it into what we want? Think about how important virtual reality is today. People are turning away from nature for the sake of what they've created, a virtual world. I, get, I just get studied, it really bothers me a lot. I mean, everybody today is so tempted, you know, to walk in the door and say, what's your Athena or Mary, turn up the, turn the volume. Oh, you, you don't even move, you just make a command and suddenly something happens. It's like, it's like God's field. No, I... Alexa. Oh, I didn't want to... You want to name her. Shame on you. Um, but isn't that true? I mean, you call out, you know, we, we want everything to be done for us today. How well do we serve nature? I, I, I love the poets of the I'm assuming. I think women are better at this than men. Women garden. 
I mean, I, we see movies where women talk to the plants and men come up to them and say, what are you doing? I mean, it could look ridiculous on one, but on the other hand, you know that, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not being uh, rhetorical, that you know that my belief is, from the poets and what they've done, is that things speak. Gerard, one of the poems we will read from Gerard Bradley Hopkins, things speak, everything in nature speaks. The poems I just read by Herbert, the words everywhere, things are speaking. Do we hear them? I think we go a little bit nuts talking about plants, but... <laughs> But I think there's a, there's a there's a wonderful there's a wonderful connatural knowledge. I think in or maybe into modern times in women uh, in the way that they respond to nature, they carry life within them. Men don't. Men live in their heads. It's a good thing sometimes. But but I think women instinctively, intuitively are are more readily. Receptive, able to, to be one with nature when they do their nurturing child. It's one of the things that defines women or should define them. Women carry wounds, it's part of their biology. So, um, one, of the, one of the gifts that reason has is that it can know natural things. Science does that, but doesn't do it with the, in the spirit of wanting to master things or to understand them, to enter into a natural knowledge with them. That's a very different spirit. And how much of, this is going to get personal, I'm not going to go there. How much of that way of viewing things has entered into our marriages? It, it's sort of commonly understood that men abuse women, or, you know, I mean, that's so out of How many ways do women use men? Not with physical force, Men have it over women in that respect, but in other ways, what, how do women take men for granted or use them? Because one of the one of the effects of the fall is that is that we turn our love away from God towards ourselves. Once we make self-love a part of our love, how do we what do we do with each other in our marriages? John Paul has written several books on men and women. Um, the tendency is in all of us, even if it shows differently. How well do we love another as another? Somebody completely committed. I remember early in our marriage, Suzanne, yeah, it was early in our marriage, it wasn't before the marriage, but one, I think I've said this, she looked at me one day and said, you're so other. Just, I never thought about it before, but I've thought about it all that sense. Men and women are so different. Would you agree? Thank God. But that, that means there's a struggle that's sort of working in the different. How well do we love? How well do we love nature? What in our, what in our modern world works against that? Paul is saying, I mean, you know, John Paul is saying here, one of the gifts of reason is that, is that it can know things. And in knowing them, know our God. How often do we see in things the workings of our God? The wind hover. The little girl, girl at four, pricking her finger. Um, Herbert, in the love poem, or the poems that are written you know, tonight, in every one of them, he's finding the word God, Christ. The second part of um, the chapter, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. The more we acquire wisdom, and remember, wisdom here means entering into a connatural knowledge, a natural knowledge with God is working in the world. 
Doesn't it follow logically, you guys? If you're acquiring wisdom, you're seeing the way in which God works in the world, certainly the way Christ revealed it. Wouldn't you find yourself understanding more than you did if you had not that wisdom? If all our knowledge is just technical knowledge and we want to use our knowledge to control things, our spouses, how well are we understanding them? Are we helping each other become more virtuous or better in our marriages? What are we doing? How wise are we? Understanding. In um, section 21, for the sacred author, the task of searching for the truth was not without the strain which comes once the limits of reason are reached. This is what we find, for example, in the book of Proverbs, notice the weirdness which comes from the effect of understanding the mysterious, mysterious designs of God. Yet for all the toil involved, believers do not surrender. They, they can continue on their way to the truth because they are certain that God has created them explorers. God will not tease us. He will not deceive us. He will not fool us. He's there. He's always there. John Paul is saying, this is a weary task. It's hard work doing it. How many of us give up for other things? And I don't even want to press that. I'm going to say we all do at times. Question, do we get back up on our feet? Do we get back up and we don't get back? Maybe I'm speaking too much for myself here. Because I think the temptations in our world are extraordinary. Reason can do so much. The comfort we can have, the food we can have, the security that we can have. Why give those things up? It's like living without God. God counts the hairs on the head. He knows the fall of the sparrow. He's saying, do not worry. Do not worry about these things. These necessities, they will take care of themselves. How much are we taken up with um, these worldly things at the expense of God? Um, 35. So this is a difficult task for all of us. Um, page 35, the beginning of the first letter to Corinthians closes the dilemma in a radical way. The crucified Son of God is the historic event upon which every attempt of a mind to construct an adequate explanation of the meaning of existence upon merely human argumentation comes to grief. True key point which challenges every philosophy is Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the learned? Where is the debater of the age? Is not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Go down a few lines. Why did, why did God choose the prophets that he did? God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing the things are. When we make too much of the world, we usually end up on our backs in there. Paul said, counts as nothing the things of the world. Um, God has chosen in the world that which is nothing to reduce to nothing things that are. If we make too much of the world so that that's all there is for us, we've got something waiting in store for us. God somewhere is going to be there putting us on our backs somewhere. Let me stop. I want to go um, um, I want to try to take chapter 3 as quickly as I can. 
Um, it's here in the opening of chapter 3, section 24, where um, John Paul is describing um, Paul, St. Paul, going to Athens and looking around and finding this unknown God. And I, there's two things that I want to point out here that I want to stop for before I look at the rest of the chapter. There's two things worth pointing out. One is that Paul walks around. This is really good for us. Paul walks around. He wants to know this culture. Why? Because he's got to learn to deal with that culture on its own terms. What does he do? He finds an unknown God, and it's on the basis of the end. He said, I've got the answers you've been looking for. And he, and he persuades them. So Paul is showing us we can't enter into a discussion with people who differ from us without finding some ground. If, if faith is the only thing in us, and we don't use our powers of reason, how resourceful will we be? We've got, we've got to use all of our gifts to find the way into people, particularly people who differ with us. Do we have powers of reason to do that? That, that is the whole purpose of this meeting for me. Over time, can we develop our resources of reason so we're in the presence of somebody who, who has different beliefs with our own? Can we draw on those sources to make an opening that might lead to that person doing, making a move? Can we do that? Um, so Paul is, is um, searching out and he's talking to people on their own terms. They have an unknown God there. That, do you see that, how clever he is? That gives an open, I've got the answer for you. That unknown God, I know. And he starts telling them about this God he knows. It's what they've been longing for, and they're converted. Paul was an extraordinary Let me stop. I want to, I want to go on and finish through. But any questions on, on, or any comments or observations on any, too much? Yeah, um, it's a big fault of mine. Big fault, sorry. All I can do is ask pardon. I don't know. It's really funny that I, um, in, uh, at St. Francis when, can you, you can hear me okay. Mm -hmm. St. Francis when I started, we, um, we started with the Iliad. So we went back, I mean I wanted to, so we, and we, we just are finishing up after seven years. Um, we started with the Iliad and I did a background and things, you know, that would get us in the book. And when, when our two hours was up, <laughs> the guy who is the head of the um, adult catechesis pro or the, I don't think that's his title. RCIA. RCIA, yeah. He deals with all the legal questions with annulments and marriages and RCIA, just, you know, very, very bright guy. He put down his pencil and he said, um, I wanted a cup of water, and I got a fire hydrant. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I wish I could parse it out better than I do. Any observations or comments? Or yeah, come on, say your name again. Alexis. Alexis. Um, oh, <laughs> wrong, wrong name. Come on. In um, the last chapter about. Um, knowledge and um, man's thirst for knowledge and we should be lifelong learners. There's also sort of contradictory literature when you talk about Faust 
and things like that. Odysseus constant searching on and on. Did you say Odysseus? Yeah. Faust. Faust first. Right. And Odysseus, yes. Um, and of course, you're talking about Homer's Odysseus, not right. Tennyson's Ulysses. Or, no. Okay. No. Yeah. Okay. No. Sorry. Go. Um, where is the line between a healthy thirst for knowledge and learning, and then that kind of curiosity that Aquinas warns us against? Wow. You weren't overwhelmed at all. That was too clear. No, I, I was overwhelmed because <laughs> I have lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. Can Anybody want to try to tackle that? What's the line between, Alexa, what's the line between, make the terms of the distinction again, the contrast between? So a healthy longing for learning and, and knowledge, gaining knowledge, right. versus sort of an unhealthy, perhaps yeah. morbid curiosity or something. Yeah. Or even, let me, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, in, in literature and in theology, we run into warnings against that with certain characters. Yeah. And where's the line? Just because I want to, I want to, if I can, just underscore what you're saying. Faust is important in that question because Faust loved learning more than anything. And if you if you've read, for those, well, I've got to be careful here. In Faust, in Marlowe's Faust in the Renaissance, the time that um, Herbert's writing. He writes a Faust. It's not Goethe's Faust, it's Marlowe's. Um, in that Faust, in that Faust, Faust despairs of his, he despairs of his sin. At the very end, he, he's so aware of the lust for these women and beautiful things that he longs for, that he gives in. And the last image is sort of going to hell. So the love of knowledge can consume you. So you're asking, where do you draw a line between um, a healthy knowledge, a good knowledge, and a knowledge that can take you over and possess you? So is that putting it too, too starkly? Anybody want to offer a thought here? I think one element would be your purpose in that knowledge. What you're trying, what you're trying, what you're wanting to do with it. Are you wanting to become godlike? To manipulate because of your knowledge. Or because you want to be well thought of, fame. You want to be known as a smart, educated person. I mean, put that out because it's so prevalent today that, that you can. You, wait, wait, you, you, wait, you can distinguish yourself from other people by showing how smart you are. You know, so, so fame, power. Sorry, uh, go, wait, sorry, go ahead. So the, the question maybe should be what leads you to, towards God? Or if what it's you're doing. What's the purpose of your life? What's the, what's the end that you're trying to get? Are you starting to learn to understand more God better? Or are you just learning for other reasons to make you look better? To make yeah. You, yeah. I think it was Hopkins. I can't remember. Michelle, go ahead. Yeah. When you were
necessary. Two things are always necessary. One is the side on which you're on, what you stand for and what you're doing, and the spirit that you bring to things. And it seems to me, I mean, people have been using the word motive, and it's, it's an appropriate word, but it, but it seems to me one of the essential things to keep in mind in, you know, when you're thinking about the question you're asking is, what's the spirit in which I'm doing this? If it, is it for power or or for myself, or reputation, or to seem smart, or to have power, to gain position, you know, whatever it is. Up until Bacon, the, the, um, the, one of the principles of the philosophic tradition was to know things for their own sake. Um, after him, and as we get into the modern world, um, 
the, an underlying motive is to control nature, to learn it, to get mastery over it, to make it serve us. Um, that's a big part of our approach. Thing. C.S. Lewis is going to take that on in the book we're doing, you know, Abolition of Man, when we get there. Um, I want to do this quickly. Um, in chapter three, um, remember in, in, in two, the, the title is, I believe in order to understand. In three, John Paul reverses that and says, chapter three, intelligent freedom, um, I think, in order to believe. And I'm trusting that everybody's seeing the implication of that. Right now what he's saying is, we, we enter into this quest because this longing for truth is innate in us. We, we want to come to this truth. It's part of who we are. As children, we begin with belief that leads us to understanding. But as we grow, we grow in our depth of understanding in order to deepen our belief in the things we can't understand. God, because the mysteries of God are so great. So there, again, um, different parts to this chapter. Um, the first part in 37 is journeying in search of truth. That's basic to us. And then in 41, he talks about the different faces of, of human truth. And I want to just cover this quickly if I can. Remember, chapter 3 begins with Paul going to Athens and, and getting the lay of the land. He wants to get a sense of who they are so he can engage them on their terms. Um, he says, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The kerygma is proclaiming the truth. Two of the terms that are really important for Paul, or John Paul in this, are the kerygma, proclaiming, and in some ways for us I believe this, the parousia, the kerygma, proclaiming, professing. The parousia, that term means, um, it's, it's a, what would you call it? Um, it's it's a, a courage, a kind of boldness in speaking the truth when you know it's going to offend somebody. So it's not just being detached in speaking the truth that you believe. It's speaking the truth when you know somebody's going to be offended by it. And John Paul praises that term. It's something we have to have. And he, he does not say, go around offending people. But he says, having that, having that spirit, that is a love of truth greater than a fear of how people will see us. It's important that we don't make what people think more important than our love of God. That means, that means taking risks. Yeah? That means some... The, the, really, the real question here, to go back to my point earlier, how important the spirit of what we do is, right? Do we do it you? If, if you're doing it because you want to make a point, or you've got to be better than somebody else, somebody's going to disagree with you, you're going to get defensive, you're going to get angry. You know? Can we approach people um, with this boldness in a spirit of humility? Not because we're, um, we want to be better or smarter than somebody, or we're afraid of saying something because they might they might dislike us. Do we have the courage to profess the truth in a spirit of love or humility? 
think that takes time. Um, page 38, all human beings desire to know. That's from Aristotle. Um, wonder is essential to us. Wonder is belonging to know the causes of things. Um, on page 40, John Paul makes the beginning of what I understand, what I see here as a turn. He says on page 40, moreover, the first addict on absolutely certain truth of our life beyond the fact that we exist is the inevitability of our death. Given the unsettling fact the search for a full answer is inescapable. Each of us has both the desire and the duty to know the truth of our destiny. We want to know if death will be the definitive end of our life or if there's something beyond. It is possible, if it's possible to hope for an afterlife or not, it is not insignificant that the death of Socrates gave philosophy one of its decisive orientations. Whether you, I mean, I don't know if you all know this, but you know that Socrates singled out as being the wisest man alive. I went through this before. He discovered that he was wise because he didn't, he knew that he didn't know. And when he went around and questioned people, he found that they all thought they knew things when they didn't. So his wisdom consisted in his knowing that he didn't know. He made so many people angry that they accused him and sent him to his death. He gets executed for being impious. But here's the question, I'm going to just take a second because we're, we're um, nearing our time. Um, Socrates was condemned to death, for, condemned for doing something he didn't do. His friends wanted him to escape and he didn't. He chose death, he said, I owe everything to this city. So he avoided escape, the opening given him. John Paul is alluding to that when he says, Socrates gave an orientation of death to the whole line of philosophy. So is that clear? That is, he believed in the truth so much that he was willing to give up his life for it. In some sense, he's prefiguring Christ, except he's doing it philosophically for his mind. He said, the truth was that important for him that he couldn't run away and die. So before we go to the end here, to this. I want to take a second. Why is death important for philosophy then? For this, remember, John Paul's dealing with two things: the quest for truth, but it takes two forms. One is faith towards that which has already been revealed to us. There should be a question about that. That's known. Christ was definitive. But this quest involving reason, when reason's powers are so fragile, our pride gets in the way, often, um, in our this searching, it blocks us in terrible ways sometimes. Um, but reason is, um, it doesn't have the sufficiency of faith. It, it, people can use reason to justify killing. People can use reason to justify suicide. If reason doesn't stand on a greater ground, it can destroy itself. So reason has a fragility, faith doesn't. But John Paul right now is asking us to take note of this fact that Socrates gave a different orientation to philosophy because of dying for it. Why is that important? Can we flesh this out? He's saying, we want to know if death will be the definitive end. Yes, yes, if it is 
impossible to vote for an aftermath for that. It's not insignificant that the death of Socrates gave philosophy one of its decisive orientations. Why? Why is that so? Why would that change our quest for life? Our quest, sorry, our quest for truth. I feel like I'm loading up a hydrogen here. This is one of these ultimate questions that, that John Paul started with. Melody, Chuck, Lori, anything? Melody, yeah, Merge. Chuck, go ahead. Did you say something? Did I, did I do something here? And then, of course, there's the fact that it's a search for something which isn't isn't visible, isn't immediate, and so that implies something beyond this life. Without without that fact of death, you see, you wouldn't have much to search for. I mean, it, all, it would be observable. Chuck, we missed the first part because I I was trying to fool around with the sound because it's. Can you give the first part of it again? Your lead into that conclusion. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what you point to me, but what I, the first thing that strikes me is that the fact of death gives a great urgency to everything. You don't have you have a finite time in which to, to reach these ends that you're, you're driven to stay. Yeah, good point. Can't take it for granted. Particularly what's helping to take it for granted is wealth, power, fame, pleasure. Um, Mary, go ahead. That's interesting, really interesting, because I mean, Alexis, yeah, if, if, um, if what's motivating us in our search for truth is power, fame, or, um, then how much are we really giving ourselves to the truth? Is there some way in which our motives are blinding us and keeping us from actually going farther? Because I, I can, you know, there's so many people wanting to get PhDs today or get smarter because they it's sort of, and, and how many kids are going to school today to get a, a, a college degree and then the, the busing at a restaurant or, you know, doing being secretary? I mean, there are all these aspirations connected with education today. You know, that if you do this, find in all of those a love of truth or a love of it great enough that you would give your life for it, that you would take risks. That might cost you. Um, so many people today um, see education in terms of the money, so that you, you try to get enough money so your kids can go to school, so they're they're not you know, they don't have to deal with risks. Everything will be paid for them. Or even today, when there are people taking the position that their college education should be entirely paid for. If you do that, you take away risks or you take meaning of things because less is asked of you. What will you get out of it? So, I, I mean, to go to Mary's point and John Paul's point, there's a lot there. You know, how many people would be willing to make great risks like that because they love truth enough to do it, to take on those risks? Particularly if our world is given to comfort and reducing risks, security, 
Here, I want to go to this part to be the different faces of truth. It's the second part of this chapter. Um, that that is, as reason pursues this truth, it's been enhanced by faith. Um, um, some, th some things happen at the top of 42. Only the sense that they can arrive at an answer leads them to take the first step. If there's no truth, why take it? If it's not worth it, why persist in it? Wouldn't you find other things more compelling? Wealth, power, job, whatever it is. The same must be equally said of the church for truth when it comes from the ultimate questions. The thirst for truth is so rooted in the human heart that to be obliged to ignore it would cast our existence into jeopardy. Because we know that lots of times today, kids grow up thinking, why bother? What for? Why? A job? Career? Look at the job market. How would that give anybody an incentive for taking four years out of their life to study? For what? Um, it may help them to turn briefly to the different modes of truth. Most of them depend upon immediate evidence or are confirmed by experimentation. That's one of the faces. That's science. This is the mode of truth proper to everyday life and to scientific research. At another level, we find philosophic truth attained by means of speculative powers of the human. The end of speculation is being, to know things in their being, not, not to get control over them, to know them in their being, to love them for that, for that reason. Finally, there are religious truths, which are to some degree grounded in philosophy, in which we find the answers which the different religious traditions offer to the ultimate questions. Here's where I want to end, in page 43, towards the end of this chapter, he says, at this point we may pose the question of the link between, on the one hand, the truths of philosophy and religion, and on the other, the truths revealed in Jesus Christ. So, the fundamental question that he's been gradually taking step by step is this question of the relationship between faith and reason. But here he says, before tackling that, because that's going to be the subject of the next chapter for the relationship between faith and reason. That's title four, right? That's where we're going. But he says, before doing this, I want to do something. At this point, we may pose the question, but before tackling that question, one last data of the philosophy needs to be weighed. This is section 31. Human beings are not made to live alone. They are born into a family, and in a family they grow, eventually entering society through their activity. From birth, therefore, they are immersed in traditions which give them not only a language and a cultural formation, but also a range of truths in which they believe almost instinctively. Talk with people from a family uh, raised in Iraq under uh, Islam law. Talk with somebody in an American family who's Catholic or Protestant. Put those two families together, will they be talking the same beliefs? Absolutely not. Yet personal growth and maturity imply that these same truths can be cast into doubt and evaluated. Everybody in Christianity and Islam can question their beliefs. They can convert. Page 44. In believing, we entrust ourselves to the knowledge acquired by other people. Go down. 
It brings into play not only a person's capacity to know, but also the deeper capacity to entrust oneself to others, to enter into a relationship with them which is intimate and enduring. It should be stressed that the truths sought in this inter interpersonal relationship are not primarily empirical or philosophical. Rather, what is sought is the truth of the person. What the person is and what the person reveals from deep within him, human perfection then consists not simply in acquiring an abstract knowledge of the truth, but in a dynamic relationship of faithful self-giving with others. And I want to stop with this question. This is close to the end of the chapter. John Paul started in chapter 1 saying, this journey for truth begins in a personal self-consciousness with an awareness of I. Personal self-consciousness, not others. Right? It begins there. Because that, that beginning implies ultimate questions. Why am I here? Where do I come from? Where do, how does evil exist? Why? What's my ultimate end? Those are all I questions. At this point in the middle of Fide Razzo, he's shifting ground. He's saying that the search for truth involves another person. Those passages that I just read. Why? How do we get from... Um, brings into play not only a person's capacity to know, but also the deeper capacity to entrust oneself to others. Why? How do we get from I... In a journey that's taking us to the end we all want, to this point at which we have to entrust ourselves to others. Why is this a crucial point here? It's midway in John Paul's cigarette. Why that turn here? Why is that important? Because the truth is a person. Sorry? Because the truth is the person of Christ. Flesh that out, can you? How do we get from I to and trusting that person. What, how do we get there? Why? Why is it important in this quest for truth? Because you cannot, you cannot know everything. You have to trust what other people have found out. And we're yeah. supposed to bring Christ to others. Sorry? We're supposed to bring Christ to others. Yeah. Well, we can't do that without bringing our... our we have to be there ourselves. Yeah, we have to let him into our lives so that there's a relationship between us. Yeah. Same reasons really important here too. Doc, yeah. what's? Did, sorry. Could it be that trusting yourself to another person into that relationship and Sorry, can you speak up? But then also like it reflects that us entering into a relationship with another person, giving ourselves to another person, we're also learning how to do that eventually with God, with, with their the fact that God is three persons. The Trinity. Yeah. Anybody else? Has anybody read St. Thomas in this group? Anybody read? I've got to run off some 
pages for you guys just to experience, take one of Thomas's proof on God. Nobody read him? If you read Plato, if you read Plato, you, you almost never find a question that Socrates raises except in terms of what. What is justice? What is beauty? What is goodness? Yeah? That question will always take you to an essence. What is? What is? So somebody says, um, justice is this. If you've read a Socratic dialogue, you know that one of his, the people he's questioning will answer. And Socrates will always have it come back and say, but, but it's not that. What about this? And the person begins to trip up and see that he doesn't know what he thought he does. Socrates is always, Plato through Socrates, is always taking us to an essence. What is something? What? St. Thomas, who has Christ behind him, and Aristotle, because Aristotle differed with Plato on a lot of questions, never, at, never, never, never asks a what question. He only asks whether something is so. Because his questions always go to existence. God is. Not what is what, his nature. He is. Um, why is that important here? What if you come into contact, what if you're in a discussion with somebody whose answers are clearly or not even subtly wrong? Because, I mean, you're saying relationships are essential. I believe they are. But what if the relationship in which you're in right now, currently, involves somebody who holds these beliefs that you believe are wrong? What do you do when somebody's giving you, like Socrates, what do you do when somebody's giving you answers to questions that show that they're ignorant, that they don't have the answer? If anybody, well, you've not read St. Thomas. If you, if you watch St. Thomas, he'll say, whether something is so, and then he'll go, it seems that, it seems that, it seems that, it seems that, it seems like, and he'll give all these answers from people who hold these different positions. And then he'll go, on the contrary, this is the answer. He will always go to a principle, and on the basis of that principle, he will straighten out every one of those answers. Now, why is it crucial to, to be in a relationship, particularly if somebody's got the wrong answer? Why is that important? Should we, wait, should the answer be take a bat and hit that person over the, sorry, take a bat and hit that person over the head and say, wake up, stupid. Don't you know the truth is, Right? I mean, using reason, you can argue it back and forth. You can talk it out, discussion, to reveal the truth. And sometimes the only way there is learning to answer the wrong thing because it makes you aware of what you have to come to to say the right thing. One of the greatest, I think probably too personally as a teacher, but I, I so believe this in my teaching when we're in class and I will ask students a question. And some students are really too shy, they don't want to ask a question because they think it's too simple or embarrassing. And I've always said, there are no bad questions, ask. I mean, if, if it's genuine, you, because sometimes the very simplest questions that nobody else asked forced me to answer it in a way that I wasn't planning because I was assuming the truth of something. And the very fact that they put that out there forced me to come up with an answer. The greatest learning in my teaching has come from answering those questions. When I assumed something was the truth, and I had to think to answer somebody for whom it was not clear. 
St. Thomas's questions go, whether there's something true. It seems, it seems, it seems, it seems. And you learn to answer something that seems to be the truth when it's not. And you, and you get clear and clear on what the truth is by having to answer those questions. Can we do that without having people in front of us who are wrong and people who are right? So we're learning to see the fullness of truth. We can't do that without relationship. Doug, what was your reasoning the other day when we were talking about it? What did you say? Why, why, do we, why, is, why is relationships with other people so important? I think Suzanne was saying because so often we think we know the truth and we assume it. Um, and very often we don't. It's important to hear from other people, to clarify, to learn to answer. And in our pride, I mean, truthfully, you know, we think we know the truth. And then we start dealing with questions and we realize we don't know as much as we thought we did. And ultimately, ultimately, I really believe if we're made in God's image, if we are, our God is not a solitary God of all. It's not a solitary God of Islam. It's not a solitary God of Judaism. If we're made in his image, we're Trinitarian. We are meant to be in a communion with someone else, whether it's God or another person. And we, can't, we cannot come to who we are without the help of that other person. We get too stuck in ourselves. So this quest for truth involves entrusting ourselves, having the trust to do this, to have the humility to enter into it. Because if we stay in our own, here, the Reformation, if we stay in our own private egos, we're not going to grow. One last thought before we break. This is my, remember on that page that I read, John Paul was referring to the Council of Trent. He was referring to the first council, the first. Um, Vatican. Huh? First Vatican. Not the first Vatican, yeah, that, right. And then the second Vatican. The first council that he mentioned goes back to Trent. That was the beginning of the Reformation. One of the things that I could have said about America or the West today is, We've been living four centuries in a shipwreck. No, no, I'm, ki I'm, not, I'm not kidding, a shipwreck. What was the story Robinson Crusoe about, written in early 17th century? Shipwreck, cast away. Shipcraft. He had to learn to survive on his own. That is, it's a, for those of you who've been in the class, it was a founding. What's the Iliad about? The Odyssey, the Aeneid, they're all about foundings, refoundings. What's Robinson Crusoe about? Refounding, learning, and interesting, learning almost to survive on your own. Except he learns to get help from Friday, the Sabbath. It's a shipwreck. We've been living under, I'm saying this seriously, I'm not trying to be cute. We've li we're living in a shipwreck because the ship broke apart 400 years ago. Watch the, watch the splintering that continues to take place. These encyclicals are being written in response to that shipwreck, that certain things were set in motion. How well do we know them? How well do we understand them, the problems that I've been listing? What's the answers to them? How well are we using reason to understand what's going on in our world? Can we use it to defend our faith? This is a shipwreck. Christendom fell apart. Lots of people would say this is a post-Christian world. Um, so, these, it's, it's, it's just interesting to watch these encyclicals, you know, that John Paul is, this is the first one endorsing or encouraging the church to take philosophy more seriously. 
for a hundred years. Because the problems in rational, the problems of the mind have gotten worse in 400 years, not better. So what are we doing to recover our health? Okay, that's what these pieces are all about. Um, we'll, we'll do um, chapters four and five, maybe finish it. We'll, we'll at least do four and five. And, and then we'll do a, a Benedict's Regensburg, okay? Read uh, Herbert's poem, Caller. It's a, it's a beautiful poem. I'll see you guys next week. Have a good week. Melanie, Chuck, and Lori, I will send you guys the poems and the other things that are related to copies of here. So read them. If it's easier than what we've been doing. Do you think it's a little easier than it's been? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Than I think it's easier. Yeah. 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 Yeah.